We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. First off, want to give a huge thank you. Uh, just over the weekend there, we hit the half a million mark on the podcast for listens. So really, really excited about it. I had no idea that it would get such a great response. So a huge thank you goes out to all the listeners and people that have helped spread the word. Huge thank you also to people who have made Different things happen with the podcast, Clifton and Sierra for the work on NWSL Rewind, looking inside the league, talking to coaches there, and then all the guests, of course, for different people that have come on and different insights, and if I was to go into all the thank yous and what I've learned about that there, it would probably be an extra podcast, so thank you to everyone, Uh, always looking to improve, always looking for new angles, got some new ideas coming up with the podcast um, very, very soon. So we'll keep you posted on that there. Also new projects with Modern Soccer Coach. Got the Barcelona trip. The registration is now live. So been a really good response to that there with World Stride. So if you would like more information on getting involved in the trip in February, please let me know. Uh, also, there's a couple of new Modern Soccer Coach events on the website, modernsoccercoach.com. Uh, also, the pressing book is now down to $20, and that's shipping worldwide. So a lot of good things happening. Take yourself over to modernsoccercoach.com. And again, thank you for all your support. Joining me for this podcast is Adin Osman Basic. Adin is a tactical analyst and coach. He writes for Spilaverung, which is a phenomenal website for tactical analysis. I would highly recommend that every coach checks that out if they haven't already. They probably have. Uh, and he also does some work for United FA at the minute. He's worked with Columbus Crews, worked in the MLS. A phenomenal, phenomenal insight to the game. So I was really, really excited to have him on. We talk about the philosophy of an analyst. We talk about positional play. How much does the ability of your players limit you when you're trying to implement it? We talk about social media, the strengths and the weaknesses in the coaching community. We also talk about tactical analysis in coach education. We touch on Jose and Pep as well. We had to talk about that, didn't we? And then we also talk about his advice for coaches who are looking to get into that area and what you can do to see the game in a different way, see the game in more detail and more depth. And he's got some great advice for that. So you're going to love this. He's on a different level. So much depth into not just what he thinks, but also how he thinks and why he thinks the way he does. So uh, I was this the time flew by when I did this here, so I think you're gonna love it. So as always, let me know your thoughts. Twitter at Gary Kernine, Instagram at Gary Kernine, shoot me an email, Gary at modernsoccercoach.com. Thanks for listening as always. Thanks for spreading the words. Here's a Dean. Enjoy. We always kick off these podcasts with a philosophy question. As a tactical analyst, what is your philosophy on the game? 
Um, I think from a coaching perspective, my philosophy would just be to play football, which I think from my perspective is, you know, quote unquote good, which just means find the best way I can with the players that I have to sort of in an objective way, find the best path to progress towards the opponent's goal, get chances on their goal, prevent them from counterattacking. When we are defending, uh, try to prevent them from getting closer to our goal, figure out different ways, what fits us more. Is it a higher press? Is it a lower press? Really, I'm quite flexible with the um, sort of tactics. Strategically, I like to think of trying to be as dominant as possible so if you can have the if you can have the ball close to the opponent goal whether you're a pressing team or a team that's keeping possession and you can prevent them from counterattacking or progressing into your half that's generally what I like to have because I feel that type of style if it's possible to do with the players that you have is the most likely to get you wins and you know concede the least while scoring the most it just depends on the type of players you have. Sometimes if you have more quality players, you can keep the ball a little bit easier. If you have players who are maybe more, you know, with the, you know, more skilled and pressing regards, then you can set up a team that's a little bit more direct, but set up for the pressing and just trying to be as dominant as possible as you can with your team. Yeah, you've, you've kind of answered my first qu- or my second question already, which was, it was like, do you see the beauty in football in terms of one way to play, or do you appreciate the variety of styles? But it sounds like you 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 appreciate the different styles. Yeah, I definitely. I love every type of style that I see. I feel any style has, or any approach has, a time and a place where it needs to be done. And if you can understand each and every single one, understand why it's being done, the players that are being used, um, and understand when it should be used then i think it adds to your sort of toolbox as a coach on any situation you kind of get put in whatever players you have if you have certain players that fit you know a formation like a five three two or four diamond two or just various formations learning sort of what you can use any formation that fits the specific players you have and then you can use any sort of strategy do we need to be a little bit of a lower block do we need to be a little bit more midfield because we're struggling with the passes in behind, but we can also keep a little bit higher line because we can be a little bit more in terms of physical duels and winning the ball. We're a little bit stronger, so we don't have to drop off too far. Can we high press because we're fast and we can just handle the high pressing situations? Are we more of a possessing team? Are we more of a counterattacking team? All these things have their fitting place. I think any approach that I see when I'm coaching – I see tons of approaches, especially in grassroots where, you know, there's just tons of variations of approaches and any approach I see, I don't view it as particularly negative or positive. I just see it as an approach and it's the job of the opposing team to figure that out. I don't have some negative emotion against someone who's, you know, parking the bus or hitting long passes. Um, I think maybe for the development of the players, it's probably less, you know, it's less likely to make them better like at on the ball situations and things like this but i feel that is an approach and our team has to be able to figure that out if we don't figure it out we're going to keep getting beat by that and then i don't blame any team for doing it against us so i just i see everything as sort of objective as possible without much emotion in terms of what i like to see i just see it as a puzzle piece that sort of fits in a place where you can use it yeah that i mean i think that's why you've got the the kind of following that you have is, is the way you see the game and the way you talk about the game, it's in a phenomenal amount of detail. 
curious how you've developed that skill. Is it in terms of thousands, you've watched thousands of games or have you been working alongside someone in your formative years or is there certain aspects of your personality that suits that or how has that been constructed? I feel like it's a mixture of many things. Um, I feel just my general personality always as a person has been sort of like a highly analytical thinker in a style that's more sort of like based upon logic and just, you know, getting everything down to its most fundamental details and then just making sense of it and building up slowly to a more complex understanding. Some people kind of get a feeling, intuitive feeling for complex things and just understand it right off the bat. I'm more the type of person that kind of takes a long time gets down every detail and starts to slowly make sense of how these complex things work and build up slowly over time. So it's sort of my personality and my love for football, which made me kind of get into the field. And then on top of that, it's obviously how you mentioned, you can't get around. You have to just analyze a lot of games, kind of get the patterns in your brain, understand different things, understand different patterns. The more games you watch from different leagues around the world, from different levels, you'll understand different formations, different styles of play, different, you know, suggestions from different coaches at their levels. And the more you can kind of imprint that in your brain, you'll understand football more as like a holistic thing and the different approach that you can use. And then obviously working on the website that I work on, Spiel Falagerung, I work with, you know, the people who have influenced me the most are Rene Maric and uh, Martin Raffelt, who are both working now in professional football. Those are two guys where I learned the most from them in terms of I was quite young when I met them and they kind of helped me to keep my sort of analytical thinking and just be more objective and kind of any biases that I would have as a young person, which I mean, everyone has biases that, you know, they try to either they try or don't try to consciously sort of get past everyone's a biased person because everything's subjective. But I think they kind of helped me open up my mind in terms of how I should think better about things, just being as objective as possible, understanding every approach. And that sort of led me on the better path. Um, if I hadn't met them, I'm sure I would have also developed to be good. But I think meeting them at the right time in my life where they kind of helped me not to go down a path where I'm quite biased, I'm committing to one style of play, I'm not watching you know every sort of opponent that you can. So just meeting them allowed me to open up my mind and just set me on the better path to where I am now. Yeah, I'll come back to, to Rene later at the, at the end of this. Um, the tactical knowledge of coaches on the whole seems to be improving with the level of information we've now, we're now getting access to. Uh, how do you think coaches can see things quicker and then adapt accordingly? Because it looks to be everyone, you know, two, three days with, with Monday Night Football, Gary Neville, everyone can sit and say, well, that wasn't done right. But how can we get coaches on the sideline to read these cues or these games and, and make those decisions and make these adjustments? Yeah, I think that's definitely me as a coach. That's something I recently started to develop at a better level. I mean, I've always been able to do it at a certain level, but recently as a coach from my experience i've been able to quickly see what the opponent's doing their structure their you know sort of patterns and adjust exactly what i'm supposed to be doing i think coaches in general can do that by you know watching a lot of games basically analyzing for yourself i think coaching is something like in in live situations which is during training or during games you analyze the game as you're watching it in a live situation it's very quick analysis 
And once you analyze it, you give some sort of feedback in the moment. So that's basically what coaching is. And then obviously you have the emotional and leadership aspects with it. But in terms of the content and the information that you give back to the players, it's sort of like a live analysis and feedback to the players. So I think if coaches analyze a lot more games, try to look at every um, sort of option and strategy openly, and then try to understand the game as a whole, which I would say is... um, I would say a lot of coaches that I see now, and I think it's a lot to do with licenses, that there's a lot of focus on the own team and not really the opponent. But if you can understand by watching a lot of games, analyzing for yourself, understand the opponent's influence on your team and how what you do can influence the opponent through all the phases of the game, throughout all the zones on the field. So not only uh, moving one winger wider or narrower when you're in the opponent final third, how does that affect also your now counter-attacking defense? How does it affect you in the middle of the field? How does it affect you in your own low block? How does it affect your transitions? How does it affect your other phases of play? So if you can understand that and how the specific opponent's going to be affected by everything, and that just comes with time of analyzing games, I believe, and just having an open mind and just trying to understand every opponent. Then in games, when a coach is on the sideline, he can immediately sort of look at what the opponent's doing, see their structure, this is what their kind of their pattern, their their sort of you know preferences are in decision making. How are we having trouble with that? What would be an ideal structure for us to maybe change into that they would have problems covering? Let's say if they're defending in a specific formation, like let's say they're just for random example, they're defending in a five three two. You see that your team's having a little bit of trouble because five three two is such a condensed formation in the center, and you're maybe you're typically a team that likes to play very much through the center, but in this particular game. You might be struggling and, and more likely to lose and you're trying to develop your players to adapt to the opponent and see different situations so you see that you think okay maybe the wide area is a little bit more open they probably can't reach my fullbacks if i have wider deeper fullbacks so let's have wider deeper fullbacks let's have wider wingers to pin their wingbacks back so their uh wingbacks out of the back five cannot come out to press our fullbacks and now you made that adjustment you're playing now to the wide zones where your fullbacks are free, and now you can expose the opponent a little bit better. So it comes from just analyzing a diff- ton of different systems, a ton of different games. You can, in, in live situations, then once you have that experience and kind of knowledge of the opponent, how you can influence them, you then see what they're doing. How are we struggling with it? Let's adjust our structure, maybe give some players a few pointers on how you want them to change their preferences and decision-making. And that's the sort of level i think we can achieve with more time as coaches you know start to realize a little bit more that coaching and analysis aren't really two different things it's more so live analysis and then once you improve that you then are able to use it live in games and you know be very changing and manipulative of the opponent i think some of the top coaches in the world that we see right now are highly you know, adjusting to opponents during games. If I think if you think of, you know, the obvious one, Guardiola, if you think of Nagelsmann, even Rose at Salzburg, these guys can see situations in the game, adjust their pressing, adjust their system in possession, even slightly. I know there's a value. The way I'm talking is kind of you should switch your formation for everything, but that's not really the truth. You can keep your general formation, make slight adjustments to from your formation. Maybe you have, let's say if you have a four diamond two, your, your eights, your wide central midfielders maybe they move out closer to the wing now to expose the wing so you can make general sort of adjustments to your base formation because there is a value of you know having the same formation learning the same concepts and you know just the familiarity with it you can kind of adjust your formations like that as well so i think it's just 
it's a long answer there, but I think you can keep your information, but just the top coaches in the world are already kind of doing it. I think it's only a matter of time where everyone starts to be a little bit more, you know, analytical and adjusting to their opponents and making it difficult for the opponent to do the same thing without being able to adjust. You mentioned there about the problem that sometimes coach education conditioning us. Do you think in the US with the way the game is done substitution wise in terms of club, high school, college, you can just pull players on and off. Do you think that that creates coaches that are too quick to make personnel changes and then maybe don't see the tactical side of the game in as much depth? I think it definitely can lend itself to having coaches who change players out quickly because they know, okay, if I've changed this player and it doesn't work, I can just put the player back in because you have basically infinite substitutions. So I think it does lend itself towards coaches who are just instantly trying to change things constantly and just trying out different things without maybe really giving a player a chance to figure it out. And I mean, I've seen that a lot because obviously I coach here. So I've seen where an opponent, they actually may be doing something pretty good against me or, or my team, for example. And it's just a case of, you know, even if you have good tactics, every, let's say, 10 situations, even if you have good tactics, there's variability in how the players are going to execute it. Let's say your players fail the first three times. But if as a coach you know what's happening and you see we're going to get them on this sort of situation that we keep creating, let's say it's like a 3v2 on the wing, we keep creating it but we keep losing the ball. I, I, I've seen coaches where potentially if they let the players figure it out, give them a few more chances that a goal could happen, they immediately change and you know move away from it just because the players are failing a little bit in the beginning. So I think it does lend itself towards coaches you know making changes quite quickly. In terms of tactical side of the game, I, I don't think the substitutions themselves, having a lot of substitutions, makes it harder for coaches to understand the tactics. I think whether you have a lot of substitutions or a few amount of substitutions, there should be still you know, the same amount of understanding and just the same sort of responsibility for the coach to understand what's happening. I just think substitutions allows for coaches to kind of try out a ton of different things, not give players a lot of time on the field. And, a chance and maybe even hurt themselves when doing it you presented at the the modern soccer coach event in atlanta on positional play and i found it really interesting coaches that were there loved it but it's almost in a lot of these events that you go to and you try to get feedback from coaches on people that that present at a really high level they almost t- finish off with but a lot of it doesn't apply at my level and what do you think about uh, with the system of play or in terms of positional play especially where's your stance on how much you can do with a certain level of player and when do you need you know the cream of the crop to be able to execute it yeah i encounter that quite often as well i think it's just because i think a lot of it has to do with when i'm giving examples or other coaches are giving examples they'll usually use teams like you know, Manchester City when they're given an example of positional play. So coaches watching that's like, uh, I don't have Manchester City players on my team. I'm coaching, you know, in, you know, north of Georgia. So I think there's a lot of, you know, things that I, I try to sometimes avoid from my personal perspective. I try to avoid sometimes, if I can, using specific team names and just kind of talk about tactics themselves. I think positional play is not something that's, for example, you need good players to do. I think positional play is just 
a type of approach to possession. And every single team at every single level in the history of football, everywhere in the world, has possession of the ball sometimes in a game. So as soon as you have the ball, you can have a positional play approach. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to keep the ball for super long in the back and, you know, just super technical players. They're excellent. You need the top-level players in the world. It generally just means you have an understanding of the structure of the opponent. You're trying to position yourself between the opponents, get, you know, valuable positioning, try to create free players, try to see how you can progress towards the opponent goal as fast as possible while having good positioning so you can progress with shorter passes potentially through the lines or, you know, with a longer pass through the lines or even in behind if the opponent's leaving that open. I think positional play is just a sort of concept which makes a coach focus a little bit more just it's in the name more on the positioning of the players that he has doesn't matter what level what you know what the coach is doing I think when you think of Barcelona or Manchester City who are like popular uh, examples of it at this point are teams who are a lot more patient in possession but I think even teams like Liverpool you could say they have a positional play like you could rate their positional play so you could say how good is Liverpool's positional play for their style it's pretty good what they're trying to do you know I think positional play, from my perspective, is something where it's just about, you know, it's almost like objective positioning of the players on a tactical board, almost in a sense. It doesn't really matter what type of players you have. Of course, if you want to have the highly technical, highly, you know, keeping the possession under any conditions, you need, obviously, better players. But even if you have players who can't keep the ball under pressure very well, you can still teach them how to position well. And I think that applies for high-pressing schemes, any any type of tactical uh, concept that you can find. I think it's important to view it as, how can I apply this to my team? And not necessarily, how can I copy what Manchester City or Barcelona are doing? Because 99% of the world doesn't have those players. So, But other, other coaches can use the value from those type of concepts themselves. So even me... I, I teach my players some positional aspects. So I teach them how do we position in between opponents so we can receive the ball? How do we circulate the ball? How do we build out of the back under pressure? What do we do when there's an open long pass once the opponent's committed a lot to our uh, building out of the back? You know, So I think there's certainly a sort of impression that when you talk about positional play, it's about no long passes, super short passes, super, you know, keep the ball under any pressure. You have to have Kevin De Bruyne, you have to have Messi, but I definitely don't think that's the case. I think it's more about, you know, trying to be any concept you see can be applied, I think, to any football match because all football games are the same. You just have to apply it to the level of players that you have. And now that might not mean that might mean that you have to play a lower block and use more longer passes, but it it you can still, with a long-passing team, have a positional play approach, in my opinion. You just have to focus on where your players are positioning, who's pinning what opponents, and you can still have all those aspects, which I've detailed before, in a team that has a different style that's not necessarily extremely technical. You mentioned there before about the hours and hours it takes to, to constantly watch the game and to get those pictures. You had a recent post on Twitter about your video you're going to do on Zona Mark and at the end of it you wrote it's going to be a long one hashtag I'm not sorry and <laughs> it made me laugh because do you think Twitter although it's been a phenomenal resource and accelerator of tactical analysis do you think it's misled a lot of coaches to think that analysis is just a quick 30 second video and, and a few coaches today are 
less willing to spend the hours and hours pouring over the videos and the animations? Yeah, I think definitely, and not only Twitter, just the general, you know, social media, it's a lot of, you know, quick, trying to get, you know, sort of quick views, quick everything, so the shorter the video is, the more people are going to watch it, just the attention span of people in general um, is probably conditioned a little bit more to quicker things, and I think many people have talked about that, I'm sure parents have talked about how their kids are, you know, a little bit different, they pay attention a little bit less they're just more conditioned to more quickly move on between things. So I think the social media aspect of football analysis is definitely sort of conditioned a large population of people to, you know, expect shorter length things. But in terms of our website, I always posted, for example, extremely long articles. And I used to always get people who were upset with how long the articles were and I just wouldn't care. I would just keep going and it ended up pretty good, obviously. So I, with the videos in the beginning, I sort of was thinking, I want people to see the video obviously. So I'm not gonna make it too long, but I noticed as I was making the videos, it was getting harder and harder to make them because I was trying to figure out what to cut out, what, you know, but everything I felt was like useful information that I didn't want to cut out. With my articles, I just kept writing until I felt it was complete all the way so it might end up like 10,000 words which is a super long article but I felt it's all there they can take however long they want to read it it can take them forever even if if they keep coming back to it it's still all there you know they're not going to miss anything and with my videos in the beginning I try to keep them sort of 10 to 15 minutes long so with this video that I just posted where I said I'm not sorry I just had this I just changed my mind I was just kind of like I really don't care how long it is or what people think in terms of how long it is I'm just going to make the video until I feel I've covered everything I want to say ended up being 50 minutes long but I think people can come back to it for a long time and just find new information that they weren't you know paying attention to in the beginning maybe learning something else so I try to make it as long as possible and just to answer your question again I think there is a general want for longer I mean for shorter length you know, articles or videos, especially on Twitter. I think Twitter even has like a limit of how long a video is allowed to be on there. And, you know, Instagram has like a minute long limit. So it's built even into the platform. So, but I think if you can, um, as, as a coach or an analyst, whoever's trying to share, you know, content on the internet and get feedback or just put their work out, I think it's not very, I don't think it's that important to worry about how long it is. If I'm honest, I think, put out as detailed information and as much information as you can on a topic until you feel like it's complete. And then I think the right people will see it and the ones that you want to give you feedback are the ones that are gonna want to read it and see the detail within it. So you find the people that you're looking for if you just do what you want in the beginning. If you're looking for the short videos, if that's what you wanna do, you're gonna find the people who are, you know, maybe less interested in the in-depth detail and they're more interested in, you know, sharing it and you know funnier clips or you know exciting dribbling skill clips and things like that so focus on sort of what you like to do and the right you're gonna sort of content what's the best way for a coach in in your opinion to deliver that Again, that balance then of what you're posting, it could be then transferred as well, that balance and delivering that tactical information to your team. So when I was in college, 
it was almost a punishment that when you lost, you would have to sit and re-watch the match. And uh, no one loves football as much as I do, and I hated it. How do you get the balance right between showing the players, you know, not, not making it too easy for them, because they have to absorb the information, learn how to be, to see it in some form of depth. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think from my experience and with players I've worked with from the national team and just in MLS as well, my experience working there, what tended to work the best is getting the most important clips and the most important, you know, sort of topics you want to hit where you guys felt you were struggling. You're not going to hit every single point of everything you messed up in a game where, you know, there's so many actions within a 90-minute game. So get the most important ones that you feel need to be fixed. Talk between analysts and coaches where it's highly, you know, just to not waste time to get points across quicker. There's going to be constant, there's going to be names and, you know, complex words used for different things. For players, you obviously break it down into this is your positioning. This is, I want you to go tackle the ball. Here's your action that, you know, in this moment when this happens, let's go and press the ball. You wouldn't say, you know, let's everyone cover the half spaces. And then on this moment, we shift as a collective and, you know, cover these. You wouldn't use these sort of languages point where it can be fixed and will help you in future games and it's delivered the right way, I think shorter amount of clips will be enough even for a bad game. Just pick the most important ones, deliver the information as well as possible in a way that they can clearly understand it and then just reinforce it on the field. And I think that would be enough. With that elite level, did you have a policy of when you delivered that information? Was there a period? Was there a cooling down period? Was it 24 hours, 48 hours? How did you do that? The schedules are highly variable, so it can be, you know, if you have three games in a week, there might be times where you very quickly review a game. Maybe, I'm, I'm pretty sure we reviewed every game, but I'm, I want to say that there might be even times where you don't review the past game because you have to immediately prepare for the next game. I'm not quite sure. I think in those cases, you would get individual players by themselves and kind of review their clips for the game and just tell them on an individual basis because there's not enough time generally to meet as a whole collective. You go out and do your training. After training, before the players are leaving the grounds, you kind of pull them aside and kind of go over the individual clips. But generally, on a normal week, I think always, let's say the game was on, let's say the game was on a Saturday or so, Sunday off or not, I can't remember. It might be Sunday off and then Monday you would go on and do the video. It can even be Tuesday, but it's generally at the midweek point, you kind of move on to the next opponent that you're going to. So in the first half of the week, you kind of review what you did for that last game. And already the analysts and the coaches are looking at their next opponent and preparing the training sessions. And then at the midweek point of the midweek point, you kind of start delivering that information to players for the next opponent rather than the opponent that we just faced. And I think the training drills are already starting to kind of get towards the next opponent and what we're going to need to improve and things like that. So it's sort of like a midweek point. Generally, I don't ever remember a case where it'd be like a Thursday and the game was on the last Saturday or Sunday and we're reviewing the last game. That was, I think that almost never happened. Going back to Twitter, reading one of your tweets from, I think it was last week, you said low, bo- low blocks or parking the bus are overrated for their defensive value. Being closer to your goal can be, in many ways, far more dangerous. There is a time for all approaches, but there seems to be a thought process of the deeper, the more defensive a team is. It really, really got me thinking. 
uh, we always think about plan B or fluidity and systems as characteristics of in possession. Uh, do, do you think that we should be start to move our thinking in terms of becoming a little bit more flexible with our out of possession systems? Yeah, definitely. I think the reason I said that is I sometimes say these sort of things that might be surprising just to sort of trigger the thought process that things that we might take as being one thing might not always be that way. So I think with defending teams, the best teams in the world, even if you think about an Atletico Madrid who most people would think, oh, they're a low block team, you know, but I think their team that when the ball is in the opponent half, they have a great high pressing system. When they're in the midfield, they have probably the best midfield block. And then low block, they're incredible at low block as well. So they, they challenge the opponent all the way from their goal to their own goal. They're not a team that just waits for the opponent at their own goal. And I was just saying that because I think in the past, and just as a popular opinion, when you think of a defensive team, a team who's good at defense, for example, you think of a team that's defending deep, they're in front of their goal, they're just hard to get through, which in a sense is good defending. And I think I think there is teams who are good at defending who play a low block. I'm not saying that, that they're not. But I'm saying they're, there's an impression that the lower you are, the more defensive you are. But I think there's teams, for example, who are often in the opponent half. Let's just take Manchester City, for example. Guardiola's teams, especially at Bayern, I think were having some of the best records ever in terms of in terms of defensive record. And that's sort of surprising when you first hear it, but it's because his team defend high up the field. And when they have the ball, they keep the opponent in the opponent half. That means the opponent has to go all the way across the entire field to finally get to your goal under pressure and then create finally a chance to try to shoot on your goal and then try to score. So there's a lot of things the opponent has to go through. At low block, you kind of have the situation because you're close to your own goal. There's a low distance to your own goal. There's more chance of things going wrong where a goal can be scored. The opponent just pumping the ball into the box. Just more chance of things happening wrong, right? So the reason I said that is because some of the best defensive teams ever are teams that keep the ball in the opponent half. You don't even get to get to their goal. That's why they concede so few goals. So a defensive team, I would define as a good defensive team, is a team that concedes few goals. So that doesn't mean necessarily a team that sits back and defends their goal at a last stand sort of situation. And some teams have to do this. Some teams don't have the quality in pressing, for example, for example, and maybe need to do this. And they can do it well and survive. So, But I think a defensive team who can concede a few goals, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be deeper. That A lot of teams who are very good at defending can be very high up the field. And then another thing, which you can almost take as the opposite, a team who's constantly in the opponent half, generally, I think if you look back through history of the top teams who are more of like a counterattacking team and the top teams who are more of like a patient possession team, if you look at, for example, just because we're on the same topic here, Guardiola's Bayern or Barcelona, they don't score as many goals as I think, like if you would just take out of example, Mourinho's Real Madrid. And that's because... Being close to the opponent goal doesn't always necessarily mean that you have the best chance to score the goal. Obviously, there's a dominant factor where you're kind of keeping them away from your goal. There's more of a defensive aspect to being close to the opponent goal and just attacking constantly on their goal. There's an offensive value to being farther from their goal. So if when you win the ball in midfield, you have more space to counter and behind. For Real Madrid's example, it would be Ronaldo and just fast strikers that they had. They scored more goals. They scored, I think... I, I, 
don't remember if I'm correct, but I think they scored maybe like the most goals in La Liga history or something like this. It might not still stand because that was about seven years ago or something, but they scored a ton of goals and they were more of a team that also scored a bunch of goals from counterattacks. So a team who can counterattack from deeper areas, but also when they get in the opponent half and they have that dominance and they're, they're kind of keeping the opponent in their own half and have the crosses and the playing through tight spaces to score goals that way, if you can add counterattacking onto that tally, you'll have a team who scores a ton of goals. So I, th- I was just trying to kind of take the mind away, for example, from thinking close to your own goal means you're defending, close to the opponent goals mean you're off, off like, you know, being offensive. In a sense, you can be farther from the opponent goal and be having a more chance to score a goal, and you can be um, farther from your own goal and be more defensive. Do you think, this is a great topic, do you think that whenever you're playing in a low block, uh, and we talk about parking the bus and there's a real negativity in the coaching community about that, especially with, with the way Jose Mourinho plays football. But, I mean, I've tried, I've tried it in college. To tr- I would have taken draws uh, one in three games. I would have played a low block to try and get a draw in a game. And here, it's a lot more difficult than people think it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think there's coaches and... I've met a lot of coaches who've had the experience where they said, I tried to keep a sort of positive result and I started to defend deep and sort of gave up the dominance of the game to the opponent and just decided to defend our goal, which meant much harder to counterattack. We almost never have an organized attack in their half. We're mostly organized defending and trying counterattacks that are pretty far away from their goal and longer passes and harder to connect. So we kind of give up dominance of the game and we're starting to get, you know, there's sort of, a constant attack and just constant balls into dangerous areas and end up getting a worse result. And then there's, and then the same coach will tell me, but then in the other game I tried to see just to see if I continue, let's say we have a good result that we want, but we continue to play the same way we want, or maybe even become just slightly more offensive, slightly more trying to be in the half, you actually end up with a better result or the result you're looking for. So I think there's a, that's a good example of kind of it's going opposite of what the natural instinct is and you can kind of prove to yourself wow maybe being more defensive doesn't necessarily mean being deeper it means conceding less goals which means i can do that not only by defending deeper i can do that by being more offensive being in their half making it harder for them to counterattack us making it less often that they have the ball that just lessens the chances for them to score a goal as well yeah it's almost like the coach who comes in after their team and thinks emotionally we played like we had we had nothing to lose, but maybe tactically you were playing like you had nothing to lose and that's why it worked for you? Yeah, I definitely think there's a certain... There's obviously always an emotional and, and, and cognitive value to those sort of things, but I think from a tactical perspective, there's like a... When you play with nothing to lose, it generally means you're playing quite more offensive and while you tend to get better results when you do something like that. And I think that's sort of where the saying comes from, as you just said. Staying on the Mourinho and Pep, your presentation was was the evolution of positional play. And then, you know, it seems to be that Pep has taken this to a new level at every team and almost every season. Jose looks as if, and I'm a big fan, looks as if it's not evolving, his system is not evolving. Uh, as or even not even at the speed, it's just not evolving. Period. Uh, w- what's your thoughts on comparing the two coaches? I think I think what you said has some merit. I think it's I would agree with it because I think 
Mourinho in possession, it's kind of funny, I think, the perception of Mourinho is that he's always a very good defensive coach. I always felt in possession he was quite good. So in his counterattacks and in his organized possession, he's always favored quite creative sort of players in a number 10 role. He's always, you know, tried to play quite interesting and quite dynamic, creative football, which was always so nice to see. I think defensively, he stayed the same over a long period of time, which as football evolved from the 2000, early 2000s to the mid-2000s and now to late 2010s, I think you see where teams are understanding more across Europe where defending deeper doesn't necessarily mean that you're defending better and teams are getting more understanding of how to expose low-block teams. And I think Mourinho's a coach who's more or less stayed with a low block, even at the most dominant teams where he's at Manchester United, he's at Chelsea, he's at all these clubs, you know. So I think he's stayed with a low block, and as time has gone on, coaches have sort of gotten a better understanding of dominating the phases of a game and kind of staying in the opponent half for longer to just have that dominance over the game. And because Mourinho's the type who likes to even drop his wingers all the way back next to his fullbacks sometimes, and they just really drop low, he has a tendency to get dominated by teams who are good on the ball where they just sit back in their own half for a long time and they are getting worse results in the modern day. I think in the past, teams were less capable of exposing this. He would win the ball quicker and then he would counterattack more often. He'd be in the opponent half then more often because counterattacks would result in being in the opponent half. And he would just more often have his offensive phases and be more often successful where I felt offensively he was quite good. And But as the tactics evolved and more coaches kind of understood the game in a different way, he became more and more pushed back into his own half, more and more sort of lacking that success. And I think there's times in games where he's struggling and then he says, all right, we're going to you know press higher now. And he all of a sudden gets a sort of more dominant hold on the game. And I think if he – it's certainly possible. I don't know if it's something that he wants to do. I think if he decided maybe we can be a little bit more – you know, higher up the field and winning the ball back a little bit earlier, just not even winning the ball back earlier, but just making it harder for the opponents, staying a little bit longer in their half, he might find a little bit more success in getting the ball more often and generally just being more offensive where I think he's quite good in terms of possession. Then when I think about Guardiola as a comparison, he's the coach who's evolved. I think at his early time with Barcelona, he was quite idealistic, quite, you know, in his very early days, they had a sort of structure that spread across the field, but more fluidity, especially with Messi moving into the center. They try to overload the center. They keep short passes, kind of possessive. They push both fullbacks higher. They create through the center with Messi and Iniesta in the higher spaces in the, in the in, against the opponent's shape. And then as he evolved, he goes to Bayern. He doesn't necessarily have those players where he can overload the middle in the same way. He's facing a little bit harder counterattacks. He wants still stable passes in the back so he makes his fullbacks more narrow so the passes can be better possession can be kept and the wingers are now freer to just stay wider and you counter you control the counterattacks better he became in a sense a slow progression in terms of his evolution is almost like a he was quite idealistic in the beginning and he became more and more pragmatic and i think at byron he became sort of like a his team became sort of like they pin you into your own half and you can just sort of let the time go and just they're about to score inevitably. You just have to wait for when. It's not even if because they just pin you in your own half. They tuck their fullbacks in. You're not going to counterattack them. 
They're going to attack the wings constantly with fast switches, whereas at Barcelona he would attack through the middle. And using his big strikers in the box, he would cross constantly and then counter-press. Cross, counter-press, keep circulating the ball, and just suffocate the opponent. And then he developed at Manchester City, he has slightly different players on the wings who are more you know, dribbling vertically rather than diagonally inside. He has attacking midfielders in the, who are who are more sort of creative players rather than a Thomas Mueller who gets in the box. And then he has smaller strikers and Aguero and uh, Gabriel. So he has different types of crosses, different types of progression on the wing. I would say even a more of a focus on, you know, switching the ball faster, kind of more focused on just getting the opponent into one area of the field and then switching out of that area and attacking with speed in terms of circulation. Still very pragmatic in terms of wanting to stay as dominant as possible, as opposed to Mourinho where he kind of drops off. Guardiola wants to dominate the game as much as possible in terms of being in the opponent half constantly, not letting them be, not letting his team be counterattacked, constantly circulating the ball. Where at Bayern, maybe he was slightly more still trying to play through all the different zones in the field, had more variability. At City, became almost even more sort of strict. Let's play down the wings. Let's switch the ball fast. Even more pragmatic. And just a um, type of like machine that can just constantly put opponents under pressure and just constantly score goals without you know conceding many few, uh, chances. Last few for you, coach education, Adin, and tactical analysis. It seems that we are we're way off at the minute in terms of getting this depth. You know, people, yeah, they've got access to it online, but uh, you know, are they getting it on the courses? Are they getting it in the licenses? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the ones who are truly, you know, interested and passionate about getting better and understanding the game better, they tend to go online and find, you know, the higher quality work nowadays that it's online. And there's many analysts from, you know, all different sorts of areas who are putting out their work. The one and generally to be able to coach, obviously, you have to get your licenses. And that means almost every single coach, I would say, is going to these licensing courses even the ones who are maybe not as passionate as the ones who will go online. So that means there's a large and significant percentage of people who aren't kind of getting that same sort of content. And I think there is potential at the coaching courses in terms of analysis and the coaching points that are given and sort of what the standards are at the coaching courses. I I know here in the U S it's changing a lot more. Now I have a lot of friends and in terms of coaches who are getting different licenses and they're talking about how this license has changed. The C is different. The B is different, you know? So I think there is changes going on. It'll take some time, but I think at coaching courses, there can be a better approach in terms of a game based approach and sort of understanding coaching through games and not trying to get specific patterns and uh, technical patterns and movements out of the, out of your team, even against an opponent that's maybe not so fitting and just trying to, condition the game and the opponent to exactly what you want to see when in reality you're going to face opponents who are you know doing various different things and you have to have a kind of game-based approach and giving them principles on how to play these games instead of conditioning it so much to what you want to see and then as a tactical approach because every license usually has a tactical portion i think they can do better at sort of just talking about this is a high variability in terms of what opponents can do. How can you adjust what you do to the opponent? How does that affect the opponent throughout all the phases of the game? How does it affect the game through the different areas of the field? And just understanding the game as a big picture instead of looking at your own team, separating it from the opponent, looking at just 
formations and trying to teach a formation, for example, as a curriculum instead of how to play the actual game of football. And then the different patterns and movements that you want out of your formation, for example. I think we can move a little bit more away from that. That's still necessary. But I think if you understand the game from a bigger picture and a bigger context, you can now teach variable formations, variable movements and patterns with the correct idea in your brain where I'm going to teach these patterns that generally apply to most of football and just general principles, just as simple as when an opponent, when your teammate turns between the lines with the ball and he's dribbling at the back line, that is a signal almost always for your forwards to start running in behind and how do you change your runs in behind based on where you are. Those sort of principles, that's just a simple one as an example, that apply to almost all game contexts can be far more valuable for coaches to use variable formations, variable sort of, you know, content they, they can teach their players where they can apply it to any situation on the field rather than sticking to a specific formation, specific pattern, specific content for your team that might or might not match the opponent on the weekend. So I think the coaching courses can get better necessarily in uh, helping the coaches teach their games and also just understanding the game as a big picture. Uh, going back to Rene Maric and, and his influence on you, can you talk a little bit about what areas that he challenged or helped you the most and how he did that? Yeah, I think I think with Rene, the main thing that I learned is sort of how to teach yourself. So he's quite talented in various amounts of things in football, but I think one of the things where he's most talented in is just the way to think about things. So the way, the thing that I most learned from him and especially also from Martin, who is quite similar in terms of just that level of intellect that they have is just learning how to think objectively about things and in detail and realistically. And then once you have an understanding of that, how to make yourself think that way about almost everything. And when you can do that to yourself, you can approach almost any problem in a way where you know you're going to figure it out the best way possible for yourself, kind of teach yourself anything that you want to teach yourself. So I think that's the most valuable thing that I learned from meeting them is kind of just having a different approach in terms of just thinking how to be able to teach myself anything in a most objective way to, you know, not take anything out of context and just be as realistic, as detailed, as sort of analytical as possible and just understand it for what it is and then try to teach yourself that thing. I know it's a little bit less in terms of football context, but that applies to football itself where then I, I started to kind of view formations and just different things and understand it for what it is and not have any bias towards it and then try to teach myself why this or this works, why is the game of football like this, what makes the game of football work, you know what are the actions of the players why does this happen why does this happen and teach myself those things so it applied a lot to my football knowledge it's more of a general approach to thinking but it can be applied to anything that you do and that's like the most important thing i think that i learned from just meeting them out of random one day where i got messaged on twitter when i was like i don't even remember how old i was i was probably like 16 or 17 oh really so that's how it started yeah i think um yeah back then renee had like a Twitter account I had no idea who he was he had a Twitter account where he didn't have many followers or anything like that he was just replying I'll never forget I was saying something about Barcelona they were pressing out of a 4-3-3 they move into a 4-4-2 I said 4-4-2 because the one of the center midfielders out of the three move up next to the striker and I remember him replying to me and at this point I had no idea who he was I just saw some Croatian guy and I'm uh, my family's from Bosnia so I was like that's pretty interesting so I, I look at his reply and he's saying 
Actually, it's more of a 4-1-3-1-1. And he was like just much more detailed. And that just caught my eye. I was like, oh, it actually is that. And he's like, this is why the different staggering makes it better to cover these open spaces. If they were just a straight 4-4-2, you can play through the lines easier. It's easier to just bypass the opponent. This is why they stagger differently. And from that moment, I was like, wow, this guy's pretty good. Like, I'd never even thought of that. And then after that, he sent me a private message um, from the from the Spielflagen uh, Twitter account in in Croatian. So that's sort of the way the relationship started. Then we started talking more and more. I started meeting the other guys from their website. You know, they had built the website kind of on their own slightly before I started online. And um, just meeting all those people. And just after that, after more time talking with them and getting better in terms of understanding the game on more detail and just being more, you know, strict on myself and not just saying, you know, this is a 4-4-2, this is a 4-3-3, just being very detailed on the exact positioning of every player and what they're doing and how that affects the opponent. I eventually joined the website myself. I think I was the first English writer. And that's sort of how it all began. It was just off, you know, just getting online, sharing your thoughts, and you just find someone who's interested in the same stuff as you and they or maybe better than you, maybe just offer something that is interesting for you. And then that's how these type of relationships usually start, especially in the modern day, I think. Brilliant. Um, and then, yeah, last one for you, kind of on that note where, you know, I think the website has been a definitely a catalyst for for a growing coaching community of young analysts and people who, who are just drawn into that side of the game. And, you know, what's your advice for the, for, for the 20-something-year-old who who wants to go in that direction rather than get on the field or who's drawn into analyzing hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of uh, footage, what would you say to them if they want to work at the highest level? I think even if you're not looking to get on the field, I would recommend coaching in some sort of capacity because I think coaching and analysis are almost inseparable. So if you're a coach, you should be analyzing. If you're an analyst, you should try to coach because there's a certain level of reality that you have to experience if you're an analyst, you're going to be a lot into analyzing the game, seeing it with your own eyes, seeing it from the field, from a view above the field and kind of having your theories and things like that. But I think it's important to go test those theories, go try them out, go try to teach players that and under- then you'll understand better why certain teams do certain things. How do you actually get it a point across to the player? Does this actually work in reality rather than on a tactics board? If you understand that, your analysis immediately becomes far more better, far more understanding of what's actually happening on the field, far more realistic. And as a coach, obviously, we talked earlier about how it can improve everything that you do as a coach. So I think I would recommend getting on the field a little bit even just to just feel what it is to teach in reality and what happens on the field actually. it, it I feel like there's obviously some analysts who are very good. They might not need that, but I think for anyone, it's quite useful to do both things. Outside of that, I think you can work just as much as possible on your passion. Keep analyzing as much as possible. I recommend posting it online because people will read it. You'll get some sort of feedback, but also, even if you don't get any feedback, putting all the details in your brain onto a work and just getting it out onto paper sort of helps you under, it, it almost it's almost more for your own development rather than for other people to learn from it in a sense because you get better by creating works and posting them out so eventually people will start reading them you'll get feedback by that by that way but also it's just an improvement i would say of yourself if you put out work like that so obviously try to coach try to analyze as much as possible outside of that i think everything will take care of itself i think you just have to have it 
open mind as much as possible. View the game. I think the most important advice I would give is view the game as sort of literal as possible. So think about what the game is. It's a field. It's a long rectangular field. You have goals on the short sides and central positions. You have a ball. You have 11 players on each team that move the ball, and they're allowed to move freely. There's certain rules. They're not allowed to use their hands. They're not allowed to use the offside rule. If you just understand the rules, basically, and then think how does each position change and don't, don't, I would say, how I said earlier, you can kind of get into simplification problems where you just think this is a 442, this is this, this is that, in terms of simplifying things too much too early. Just look at literally what everyone's positioning like, what is the effects of that, just attack everything in terms of questions in your brain. Why is this happening like this? Why are they positioned like this? Oh, this is a 442, but they also call this a 442. Why is why are they look different? So understand anything that you see that's different, you have a question about, attack it, understand it as much as possible, and view the game as the fundamental components and just try to build your knowledge of the complexity from that point. That would be like the most important advice along with, you know, getting out on the field and doing analysis yourself. Brilliant. Brilliant. Adina, I can't thank you enough, first of all, for, for coming on the podcast, but also for the level of information you put out and for challenging coaches like myself online. Every time you, you read some of your work, you go away and and go take yourself somewhere for five minutes mentally uh, <laughs> to, to digest it. I appreciate everything you do for the coaching community, and I know a lot of people out there do as well. So Thank you for your time today and, and thanks for everything you do. No problem. I, it was a pleasure for me. I, I love doing this stuff and I love the feedback that I get. And I learned a lot from it as well. So it was definitely enjoyable to do this podcast and just to put out work every day. Thanks so much to Adine for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, at the end there, when he said, it's a pleasure to do this podcast and get feedback and put out work every day and something so simple is just a powerful philosophy. I think he's he's passionate about what he does. He loves getting feedback about what he does. And he's also really, really consistent about the quality and the level of work he puts out every day. So uh, quite a lot I took from that there. I met a Dean before. And the thing that struck me when he done the Modern Soccer Coach presentation that was on a specific way of playing in Atlanta, it was on positional play, but it was just came across just so open-minded about his approach. I'd been to coach education events where people come in and talked about certain systems and it, they were not going to be moved. They were so rigid in those beliefs, but Adin isn't. And you can tell he is. He just has a really, really nice way of being open-minded. And it, and it doesn't matter. He doesn't think there's a right way to play or a wrong way to play. Like he says, if, if you can go into detail and the depth and you can talk about it and defend it, then he respects it. And I think that's what the top, analysis people that I've followed and that I've talked to over the past few years that's the that's a, a common trait for all of them is is that they are open-minded and they do challenge you to think but they don't challenge you to take their views and I think there's a big big difference so really enjoyed that there I also completely agree with them if you're an analyst you should be somewhat of a coach and if you're a coach you should be somewhat of an analyst and I think the days of tactical analysis and coaching kind of being on different levels have now gone and you know people like Adine and the, the website the Spilaverung website and people like Jed Davies and people like Pep Guardiola are just moving the the, ta- the level of tactical detail is so high 
right now that you've got to go into opposition analysis and you've got to go into looking at your system and where the holes are and little intricate details that you can improve on or develop and that's part of coaching today that's part of coaching and and the coaching coaching has extended from the training field and from the changing room into meeting rooms into offices into rooms with your staff into you know high level conversations with people in different areas so and the last piece for me was was that aspect of putting out work constantly and getting feedback and you know, we, we sometimes look at these analysts and think, right, well, they're putting out articles and articles and articles and so much detail, and this is great. But I think a lot of other coaches and coaches of every level could put out a little bit more work and they could put out more work about their teams and their coaching and maybe challenge their own ideas. It seems like we're a little bit cautious to do that. And sometimes we grab a quote and sometimes we grab a nice, easy hashtag i think social media today i think we need a little bit more detail if we're going to push the conversation forward from a tactical level uh, on all coaches you know and i think maybe i saw last week erwin van bennekom posted a a nice little video about what he was doing with his team and i think you know if you're doing something good with your team over the weekend and you scored a great goal then don't be afraid to put it online or if you give away a goal and you know and you're happy enough showing it where you made a little bit of mistake or there was a mistake in transition or was it a mistake in the shape and you see it so many coaches can benefit from that online and so many coaches can can kind of change the conversation from picking apart other people's work for maybe looking at it and reflecting and and maybe then you know adding to it and and keep the valuable content going because I think uh, I think it's needed online to be honest at the minute but that's a different conversation for another day so thanks so much to Dean would love to know your thoughts would love to know what what resonated with you what you really enjoyed anything you disagreed with all that good stuff please let me know at Gary Kernin on Twitter at Gary Kernin on Instagram really appreciate you listening to the podcast really appreciate the support like I said at the start half a million can't believe it um, and can, please 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 continue to uh, to help spread the word thank you have a great week thank you for listening to the modern soccer coach podcast for more coaching topics sessions and resources head on over to coach Kernin on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com 